Ladies, gentlemen, non-binary, I'm Ethan Shapiro, founder of Climate Change Realty and host of the Change in the Climate podcast. And let me ask you this. Are you aware of any other way to donate thousands of dollars to your favorite environmental nonprofits with zero dollars out of pocket? Because that's what happens when you find your real estate agent with Climate Change Realty. www.ccrealty.org. Find your real estate agent today and save the planet. Enjoy the podcast. Well, well, well. Here we are, Daniel. The tables have turned, and now you're on the podcast. How's it going, man? Better every day. Yeah, I like that. I like the response. Um, yeah, so Daniel had previously interviewed me a couple weeks ago. I love what he's doing over in Indiana, and we had connected in the past through um, one of our friends at Citizens Climate Lobby, the uh, donation liaison. Um, big, big fan. Anyways, um, you know, Daniel, we always like to get this podcast started with a little bit of background on who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing at the current moment. Sure. So I, I was born in California, but I grew up in Indiana in a small town and I went to college, uh, for philosophy and I lived my first 10 years after college doing software development, web development. And then I spent a few years doing advising to social entrepreneurs. So about a hundred entrepreneurs and then I took a year off to do a, a sabbatical, kind of like Jason Jacobs of my climate journey, but I did not interview the, uh, I didn't record the interviews. I interviewed about 300 people working on climate and environment in the Midwest. And out of that research, I created a, a nonprofit that I work on daily called Carbon Neutral Indiana. So that's my background. Okay, cool. So let's let's kind of get into what led you on this 300 interviews is a lot where that's way more than even this podcast has. So how did you, you said software development? Yeah. Like making, making websites and apps and stuff like that. Okay. So how did that lead into talking to lots of people and then training entrepreneurs how to run their own businesses? Well, I'll go back a little further back in the late nineties. Um, when I started making websites, I used to hang out on AOL instant messenger I don't know if you're old enough to remember that, but um, I am actually. They had these chat rooms on topics, all kinds of topics. And um, I used to open up like 15 chat rooms at a time and I would copy and paste a message and I would spam all these chat rooms. And I would my, my message was, hey, does anybody think it's weird that we exist? Send me a message and let's talk about philosophy. I love that so much. <laughs> so I, I spammed all these people and then, you know, like fisher, like a fisherman with a fish pole, I'd get a couple bites and a couple people would say, Hey, I, I think it's weird. We exist. And we'd start talking and we would talk. So I've always loved just talking with random people around the internet, um, all the way back. And so being a, a web developer is very kind of a lonely job. You're just sitting by yourself on a computer and, um, while it pays well, um, and it's, and it's good for people who think analytically, it wasn't satisfying that networking and I remember reading in college a book by Keith Ferrazzi, Never Eat Lunch Alone. Mm -hmm. Basically, don't eat lunch alone. You want to keep meeting people. And I and I just totally internalized that. And in college, I created this thing called Mind Pollination. It was a Facebook group where the idea was I invited all my most interesting friends and then they invited their friends and people just randomly hook up for lunches and get to know each other. Um, and I also was really inspired by, have you ever heard of edge.org by John Brockman? I don't think so. It, John Brockman, he's taken some heat lately. You could re, uh, listeners can Google why, but basically he is the supreme networker. He was a book publisher, and he would basically have these um, dinner parties where he he would invite tech billionaires and scientists and academics and just interesting people. 
And he was always connecting people and having these awesome dinner parties. And edge.org is like a hub of all these intellectuals. And I really ad- admire, you know, Keith Ferrazzi and John Brockman and all these like super networkers who are um, like bees pollinating flowers. So that doesn't really jive with software engineering, but it's just a right. deeper personality desire, I guess. Why why software engineering to begin with? And bro, you got to add me, warioboy203 at aim.com for sure. <laughs> um, why? Um, why, 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 why did you get there initially? Was it like money or was it like a, a reasonable path out of school? Because you studied philosophy. Now, if it was up to me, I would have done my whole major in philosophy. I have a minor in philosophy, but it didn't, it, everyone says it doesn't really lead to good job prospects. So is that kind of why that you true. entered and how to philosophy is learning how to think well and how in the world totally. could that be a bad thing? Sure. The whole future economy is the information economy. You need to think clearly. And you need to communicate and write clearly. That's philosophy. So, I agree. I, I just don't think people understand that. I think you understand that, but yeah. Well, it's hard when you're you're you are learning to think at that age. You're finally have your first like little taste of autonomy when you get into college, and then there's all these different pieces of information trying to push you one way or the other, and it's up to you to decide what you kind of jibe with. And what's sad is that most people spend their time just like drinking, smoking and doing, having lots of sex and just trying to ignore the meaningful stuff and just focus on the short-term gratification kind of thing. Um, (laughs) Before we get into what you're doing now, um, Daniel, why, why, why do we exist? What does it mean to exist? Where, where did you come to in those, those conversations and the 300 you've had since then, of course, as well. I have to shout out to my man, Elon Musk. I love Elon. I'm a huge fan. And you know, the deepest thing he has ever said, I completely agree with him. He said this in a couple interviews, and I'm going to set this up a bit. I used to do these uh, sensory deprivation tanks. Have you ever done that? I, have never, I haven't done it. I actually just saw one in Boulder the other day. I could go check it it's out. Cool. I, I went in, usually you do it for an hour. I went in for two hours and I just like, you know, shut the door. I'm floating in salt water in pitch black with earplugs in. There is no sensory input into my brain. It's really interesting. And I'm floating in there and I start thinking about questions and I start thinking, what is a question? And I know it sounds like a, an, a, a, like I'm high, but when I got out of the sensory deprivation tank, I was just perplexed by like, what is a question? Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's like the soul wants something. And so the soul articulates to the best of its ability and it waits for the universe to give it what it wants. And so I was thinking, why don't we analyze questions on purpose? There are so many occupations that live and die on questions. A journalist lives and dies on questions. A therapist lives and dies on questions. Teachers like Socrates live and die on questions. But at no point do we actually study questions and what makes a good question. And you would think that if you could study questions like at least read a book about it, but ideally take a class, you would think that that's nuclear fuel for your curiosity and your intellectual growth, right? So I've been playing with this idea for a long time that questions are like the most important thing. And in an interview recently when Elon talked about buying uh, Twitter uh, with the uh, guy who founded TED Talks, Mm -hmm. he said that his whole purpose on planet Earth is not just to colonize Mars. It's deeper than that. Uh, Elon was saying how his purpose is to expand bio, uh, consciousness, both biologic consciousness and digital consciousness, like AI, so that 
consciousness can ask better questions so that we can figure out, and this is Elon's words, what is the question that the universe is an answer to? Like, why is there a universe at all? There's a question that we can ask that we have not discovered yet. And the answer to the question is this, is the universe. I thought that was really cool. And he's mentioned this a couple of times. So this is like his deepest thing. And I totally feel like that's my deepest thing too. I could, yeah. I mean, you're you're really peak peak of my interest here. As people know, we we've, we've spoken before. This is the kind of stuff I really like to talk to. But I actually think I I I understand that, and I and of course, as an interviewer, I'm always thinking about the the best questions to ask to pique people's interest. Typically, to to get to the core of who they are as a person and why they make the decisions that they do. But throughout my my journey through the, this type of stuff i haven't done the, the sensory deprivation tank and one thing i wanted to comment on is is what is being high but just being in a different state of consciousness whether you're on pills or you're drunk on alcohol could be considered being high or you've smoked marijuana for people who are listening i was a daily smoker of marijuana cannabis marijuana for um for years and i've and i've been sober now actually one week will in a week it'll be a year and i'm sticking with yeah. that now um to Again, I like to think more pragmatically when, when, when you smoke pot, you get a lot of ideas. So you ask a lot of questions, not necessarily. It's just hard for, 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 for staying level headed is what I really found for me is to have like a balanced, um, a balanced life. It kind of makes me swinging through all these different amazing ideas, which is fun, but is it, um, aligned with my goals? Um, where was, where was I going with this? I think the answers are a lot more simple than people might, might expect. I think that there is, um, millennia of, of traditional wisdom and in statements that people think is corny, like love thy neighbor as yourself, treat others how you want to be treated. Loves the answer, loves where it's at. Like, I think that the answers are really simple to, I guess, I guess the answers are simple, but the questions are not. If you start asking a bunch of different questions, you'll end up in an unlimited amount of answers. What is the universe itself, but the concept of infinity? Anyway, so me and you could go off on a whole a whole philosophical podcast. I'll, I'll let you respond to that if you want. Otherwise, I'll just start talking about, keep talking about your journey to where you're at now. Because we'll get to the, I promise, guys, we'll get to the climate stuff soon. <laughs> um, I think you asked all that was just like, you know, you said, why are we here? Um, my favorite answer to that is, uh, professor of uh, religion, uh, the philosophy of religion at NYU. I think I mentioned it the last time we talked. James Kars. Mm-hmm. This is one of the best mental models for life that I've found. Just that life is an infinite game. And instead of, uh, there are finite games and there are infinite games. Finite games are things like basketball or chess where there are definite rules. And there are there's a, 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 um, a referee. And you win or you lose. But the infinite games... You change the rules as you go, and it just op- and, and the idea of winning the game. There is no such idea. The idea is just basically to expand your horizon even further. And the more you play, the further her- the horizon gets. Um, that's like my favorite answer to that question. Well, I've mentioned this on the show several times. It's been quite a few episodes since I've gone into that, that topic, but I think it's it's something I say a lot. The idea that if we had all the answers now, it would be like boring. If you could just score a goal and win life 
then what do you do after that? The beauty of this existence of being a young person or being someone who's still alive and has years ahead of them is that you can continue to grow and learn and try to become better. And then once you become better, it doesn't mean that you are now best. That concept doesn't isn't really vibe for humans. It's always there's always a little bit more you could do or a lot more depending on your perspective. And that's the beauty behind the infinite game. It's uh, the same stuff with all the self-improvement stuff. So so speaking of self-improvement stuff, do you want to tell me a bit about your experience working on Applied Ideals and um, why you were drawn to work with social entrepreneurs in the first place? Sure. So it all started, I think when I was around 25, I flew out to visit my one of my best friends in Boulder or Denver, Colorado. And we sat on his porch and we read the Bible. We read specifically Ecclesiastes. Um, basically, if I'm remembering this correctly, it's basically King Solomon, David's son, had everything you could wa- you could want. He was the wealthiest man on planet Earth. He had dozens of wives, if you would, if you want that. He had hundreds of horses. He had uh, buildings and and land and armies and. He had access to the wisest people of the day. He had everything you could want. And so Ecclesiastes is basically the result of someone thinking about, well, I have everything. What's the point of life? Because it's all going to go to dust, just like the song Dust in the Wind. So what's the point? And it's pretty depressing. If you read Ecclesiastes, it's like a gut punch. It's pretty dark and nihilistic. Or At the beginning, it is. So my friend and I read this. And we just kind of got clear that we're going to die. And then um, like Stephen Covey talked about, have you read Seven Habits yet? I haven't. You have to. You have to. Before Finite and Infinite Games. He said that basically you do this thought experiment where you're dead, you're at your funeral, and your best friend talks about you, your wife talks about you, and your business partner talks about you. What mm-hmm. do you want them to say about you? And then you write down what you want them to say about you after you're dead. And then you work backwards. Okay, well, what kind of person do I have to be for that to happen? What do I have to accomplish? So on and so forth. So that's what my friend and I did on his porch. We spent an entire day reading Ecclesiastes, getting in the right mindset, and then doing the uh, the the Covey exercise with the funeral. And then we figured out what, how we want to be remembered. And then what do we need to accomplish to make that happen? And then worked backwards. What do we need to do in the next two years to make that happen? What do we need to do in the next quarter? And we did this in different categories, financially, socially, intellectually, spiritually, physically. And there was uh, another category I forget. And then basically every week we would talk on the phone for 15 minutes about our quarterly goals. How are you doing? What's the obstacle? And I did this for like two or three quarters. And I had a huge board on my wall where I had like post-it notes with the goal. And if I accomplished the goal, I would tick it upwards and we would do, we would check in every week and it became like nuclear fuel. I was like on fire. Mm-hmm. And, um, eventually some friends were like, Hey, can you do that for me too? So I started doing, um, accountability, being an accountability partner for other people. And it was awesome. It did not pay well. I made like over three years. I worked with a hundred people. If you go to applied ideals slash results, you can mm-hmm. see the testimonials. It is like my proudest accomplishment. Um, most of the people I worked with were young entrepreneurs just trying to get their bearings. A lot yeah. of them we're into drugs and stuff and they credit me with helping them get out of drugs, which I am very proud of, but I made like a poverty wage over three years. I averaged like $18,000 a year. And the value that this was providing these young people was I think much better than a lot of colleges that you pay $50,000 a year for. So 
Um, I'm really proud that um, of this chapter of life, which is basically coaching a hundred people. Um, now, because they were young and they had not established themselves yet, it didn't pay well. Coaches can make a lot of money if you're coaching executives, Definitely. you know, people that are 40, 50, 60, you can make a lot of money coaching, but I focus on young people. So that obviously sounds like really fun, meaningful work. No, no way around it. And that exercise is undoubtedly extremely valuable, especially if someone goes and looks at the results from your company and that work that you've done. There's no way around that. What what I think, though, is do you think you have to care about what your business partner, wife, and what was the other one? Family said about what was the, what were the three people? It was business like partner, your, your spouse, spouse, and your best friend. friend. Yeah, like a colleague, a friend, and your spouse. Do you even have to care what any of them think about you or say about you after you're dead? Not really. It's a good I exercise. Think, yeah, he just but, does that to give you something to hang your hat on to think about, right. you know? Right. Um, I don't know. People might not like this. It might be a very egoist position, but I'm not really concerned with what anyone thinks about me except myself. I try to view myself when it comes to setting these types of goals and doing these things. I try to think of what would my, I call it, who is it who said like the Uber, the Uber mensch? Was that, I start with a K? Was this a philosopher? Or was it Nietzsche? Nietzsche, okay. Like the Uber mensch is like, that's the same idea, like the ultimate self, right? I was very influenced by him too, but um, that's a whole other chapter. (laughs) Um, Am I correct though that Uber mensch in German means like ultimate version of yourself? Like what's Um, the best you could possibly be? It's been a while. People should look it up on Wikipedia. I don't, I'm sure he has a very specific meaning. I don't remember. I'm pretty sure that's what, what the case is. Um, and I always try to think, what would my ultimate version of myself think of me now? And how can I use that information to continue on and improving yourself? Um, that's, that's kind of the way I like to look at it. And that probably that might not work for everyone. But as someone who spends a lot of time in their own head, talking, thinking about this kind of stuff, that's what works for me. Um, what do you think from you, from your working with a hundred people and, and you're obviously you're an entrepreneur yourself, what do you think are the most important traits of a successful entrepreneur? Well, I, I don't know if I'm qualified to say that I just, I'm 35. So I, I've, I've, um, I've been an entrepreneur since I was like 10. I'm always selling something. So I, like you, I've been paying attention to other people, reading books, thinking conversations. Um, so I don't know. I, I'll just throw out a couple ideas. I think persistence. I think, um, you know, if you haven't seen it, watch Steve Jobs' commencement address to Stanford. He did, he dropped out of college and then Stanford invited him to give a commencement address. That is awesome. Hmm. And he basically just talks about, you know, don't live with dogma, which is the result of other people's thinking. And um, so I think it's like persistence. I think it's like being willing to go out on your own. I think a lot of people are afraid of what others think, like you're mentioning, um, my favorite idea I learned in college, and I think it's worth the price of admission for this one idea was from a cognitive psychology class. And basically what they talked about was an experiment where you draw a circle on the white, uh, blackboard and you have another circle that's obviously bigger. And then you have a room full of people and they're all in on the experiment. They're all Confederates, except for one person who's a Joe Schmo off the street and they don't realize what's going on. And the person at the front of the classroom says, which circle is bigger? And they ask the first person who's in on it and they say, oh, they're the same size. And then you ask the next person, oh, they're the same size. And you go around and by the last, the last person who's not in on it, they're just Joe Schmo off the street. They cave into social pressure 
And they go, obviously they're different sizes, but they go, uh, they're the same size. Yep. And so that experience happens like tens of thousands of times by the time you're 18, you cave into social pressure in 10,000 ways. So I think, I think something that's incredibly important, um, is just to kind of go your own way and to be and to try to be an independent thinker. And the cliche today is first principles, because that's what Elon says. But yeah, mm-hmm. first principles, go back to the original thinking. Don't be afraid to go out on your own. I think also they're persistent, they're crafty. So if you look at different animals, I think an entrepreneur is like a fox. The fox is not the owl. The owl is like the wise person in the mountain who's, you know, giving these maxims. But that's not the fox. The fox is crafty. There's a saying, it's better to be a live dog than a dead lion. So the entrepreneur has to live the next day. You have to survive. So you have to be crafty, like street smart, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I think there's also a huge thing with, um, there's all these entrepreneurs, there's all these academics who talk about business and innovation, but they're not Elon Musk. So there's something you have to be careful with, with ideas and intellectualization. Um, that's not what the Fox does. That's not what Elon does, you know? You gotta be like practical. Um, so persistence, being practical, pragmatic, um, going out on your own. I think also sales, sales is like the most important thing in the world. Not only are you selling your product, you have to sell the vision to your employees. You have to sell the vision to investors and so on. So sales, which is basically persuasion, which is basically, do you believe it yourself? The Zig Ziglar, the sales trainer said, the best way to sell is with your heart. Um, and, and it's with passion. It's not with arguments. And so in order to get that, you've got to believe what you're selling. If you're selling snake oil, people are going to know. Like you really Mm -hmm. got to believe what you're doing, which is why Elon is so persuasive. He believes what he's doing. In order to believe what you're doing, you've got to do what uh, Steve Jobs talked about, which is don't live with other people's dogma. You've got to figure out your own, go follow your questions, read the books, interview people, find some kind of solid ground that you can stand on and you can say, this thing is a good thing. I'm going to go sell it. You know what I mean? What's your relationship with fear and your thoughts on how people deal with fear? I hired a coach, uh, shout out to Greg Faxon, F-A-X-O-N. He was a, a championship wrestler when he was young, really cool guy. And he always talked about, uh, he actually has a book that I outlined. It's on my website. Um, the name of the book escapes me right now, but essentially it's about fear and, uh, um, I'll find it in a second, but basically the title of the book is called don't let the fear win by Greg Faxon. Very short book, highly recommended. There's another book called Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. So I think um, a lot of public speakers I've talked with, uh, they're terrified to speak publicly, but they do it anyway. Comedians say the same thing. They go out on stage and their stomach is in knots, but they do it anyway. So I think that's what you got to do is like find the fear, do it anyway. I'm not necessarily the best person at that, but that's what I think is true. Yeah, well, there's the the animalistic instinct of having fear to protect your life, but I just wanted to throw that in before I say it would it would seem that the most meaningful moments in life are on the other side of fear. If you give the most basic example, if you're a man and you're attracted to a woman, it's scary to go and talk to her, but that's like the ultimate yeah. thing that you're looking for. That's what for. I thought of first. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's like rudimentary. That's like super basic. Anyone can understand. If you don't do that, you're not going to you're not going to get to where you want to be at at a basic level at all. And if you keep expanding that out to everything, whether it's public speaking, whether it's starting your own business, whether it's just, you know, going into the gym if you haven't been in the gym ever before, like it's 
I also say I'll give two. I wanted I want to say two stories. Um, number one, I knock doors. Everyone knows I've mentioned a million times for for two years or more. And every day I'd pull up and I'd be like, nope, like this, not trying to do this. But I, but after you get done with the first door, it's it's the hardest one. It's always just the first door. It's always just getting your foot into the gym. You have to get, get some sort of training, some sort of um, habit of just whenever like you have a hesitancy to do something you know is good, you always at least do it. That's just like at least showing up. That's why when I say like when you show up, you beat like 80% of people. Um, the other thing I wanted to say is that when I was knocking doors I, um, in Boulder like a year ago, I knocked on the door of this guy and he was like in an Airbnb from Texas. And he was like Zig Ziglar's like business partner for training people on, on real estate. Yeah. And I, and I went in, I talked to him. I told him what I'm doing. He's like, you're going to be running Denver in like a couple of years. And I'm like, hell yeah, man. <laughs> so I wanted to throw that in. Oh, yeah. And um, meditations. When you're talking about first principles and, and thinking about not not um, adhering to like dogma, the most valuable philosophical work I read was outside of class. And I picked up when I was 20 or when I was 18 to 20. We talked about this on our interview. I was really dogmatic. I was a militant atheist and I thought I was like the smartest person ever. And yeah, exactly. And finally, when I was 20, I wanted to read meditations and I was like, Let's just say I don't know anything. That's like been the most valuable experience I've ever had because it opens me up to everyone's way of seeing the world, which is so much more fun than being in your own little like tunnel and thinking that you know everything. Uh, anyways, we can this is, we can go o- over and over about philosophy. All right. So the, the last kind of main philosophical point I want to ask you is any advice you have for having people find their their call to action to realize that when you wake up and you have a choice, whether you're going to go sit in a sensory deprivation tape, contemplate life, or just go talk to a girl or a pretty guy or whatever, you don't like people don't have to spend their life doing things they don't want to do to continue on doing things they don't want to do. And I think so many Americans is the only people I can really speak to because that's where I'm from. But I think a lot of people I've been told by their parents or been told by their friends or told by society that you need to do this because then it'll get you that. But that, that, that um, is, is up to you to decide what you want. So, I mean, how, how do more people, how can more people find a call to action to really take this autonomy and make decisions for themselves and actually live a life that they enjoy every single day? I'll take a heretical approach because obviously that's where I come from. I love this, uh, self-flourishing, um, self, follow your bliss philosophy. However, that's very American. And mm-hmm. historically, that's not the way people operate. You do what your parents want you to do. And you do what your grandparents want you to do. And it's like all, Yeah, but what know, do they know? Well, they it's just know what their grandparents said. Well, it, it's evolutionarily successful because the these uh, philosophies have succeeded for hundreds of generations. So- it's likely that there's wisdom there, but yes, we're very but what different. What is success? You say it succeeded for generations. How, you have to define success for yourself. You can't just say well, they've succeeded, you know? I'm just giving some context. This idea is very American and it's like 200 years old, but it's not the way things have been for most of life. Success is evolution success. You survive and you pass on your genes and your ideas and you become more powerful financially and physically and spiritually and, cult, you know, um, Meh. there are people who... Definitely, I have a romantic spot for them. You know, a homeless man on the road who's a poet. He has no children. He has no wealth. 
and he's following his bliss and he's trying to meditate and connect to God. Like I totally feel romance for that. And that's totally a way to live. There is a whole other world of survival and procreation and growth and building a nation of people. Like that's a whole other thing. And um, I think it's important to realize that a lot of one, I know we probably are not going to get into politics, but the, the best political book I've ever read was by this African-American man, uh, an economist from the University of Chicago who studied under Milton Friedman named Thomas Sowell. Do we talk about him? We haven't. If you're interested in race relations, black-white relations in America, you have to listen to Thomas Sowell. He is a heretical thinker, which is good for you. And Could Thomas you Sowell- tell people is, what that means, heretical thinker? He goes, he like if, if everyone's going this way, he'll go this way. Mm-hmm. And it creates color and a liveliness and intellectual depth. Thomas Sal is amazing. And his book, Conflict of Visions, gets at what your question was. It's basically talking about how, in general, there's like the left and the right. In general, the right thinks in terms of many generations. We're, they think of institutions and ideas that will live for hundreds of years. On the left, we're kind of unaware of these multi-generational wisdom things. Instead, we think in terms of the individual and unburdening ourselves from obligations. Um, And so this idea of follow your bliss, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson and um, who's hero's journey. What's that guy? Joseph Campbell, Mm -hmm. this whole thing. And very much so in like LA yoga, like I'm just feeling like this today. That is very American. And um, anyway, I'm I identify with this, but I'm in the middle. I'm actually. What was your question again? I just wanted to give that context. I like that context. Um, yeah, I try I try to avoid politics as much as I can on this show, and um, <laughs> generally in life, I, I prefer to more think about it from the from the terms of the individual and their personal ideas, not what others should do. It's about what you should do for yourself. How do more people find their call to action to realize they don't have to spend their time doing things they don't like to continue spending more time doing things that they don't like? Yeah. And I think even if you respect your elders and you try to uphold traditions and and, uh, institutions, that doesn't mean you have to suffer. Um, Even within uh, conservative thinking, you can find the special thing that the universe or God gave you that is your special gift. You know what I mean? So whatever your politics, you can still find your, you can still answer the question you gave me. I think um, different people think differently. I think in quite, I think in conversation. So having more conversations with people helps me. I think that's a good answer. Listen to podcasts. reading. You got to read, you got to get out of your, uh, your 2022 Twitter bubble bubble. You got to read what people, like you said, meditations by Aurelius. Not Aurelius read. by Descartes. That one's good too. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, I should have So reading, just get out of your 2022 bubble. Um, writing, for me, um, there's a guy named C. Wright Mills. He was a sociologist, and he has a book called The Sociological Imagination. And in the end, there's a chapter called Intellectual Craftsmanship. And the last chapter is, a, is basically a letter to younger sociologists, and he's explaining the tools of the trade. How do you conduct yourself as a researcher? And he talks about the, uh, maintaining notes. And he has like this um, image. He has all these three by five note cards with ideas written on them and they're all filed away properly. Um, And he talks about 
maintaining your notes and updating your notes with like, when you read a book, you outline the book and you add it to your notes. You interview somebody, you add it to your notes. You have a a 3 a.m. idea, you add it to your notes. You have all these notes and they're all connected. Maintaining that is intellectual work. You don't have to write. You don't have to uh, create software code or uh, write write music, but even maintaining your notes is intellectual production. And I think if you want to find your bliss or find your special thing, it's really important to like um, write, put it in notebooks and and value that more than your nice car. Like your notes are more valuable than your fancy stereo. You know what I mean? Because it's your unique thing. And I, for me, that's very helpful. Oh, I know what you mean. I don't know about everyone. Yeah, I don't know if I'm even like... People don't even have to find their their bliss just like if they're not enjoying what they're spending most of their time doing. I think that's um, I think that's awful. Um, and there is a another another approach to that. Are you familiar with the myth of Sisyphus? Yeah. Did you did you know it's actually it's it's like written by an American, I think. Like I was written like not that long ago, and it sounds like this Greek story. But uh, the myth of Sisyphus is about this person who is uh, punished by the gods to roll a boulder up a mountain and then have it roll back down. Kind of like how, what is it, Prometheus was punished. He would have the bird come and pick out his liver because he gave the people fire. Sisyphus was punished to struggle to push this boulder every day. He wakes up, he, he spends the whole day pushing the boulder up the mountain. And then it rolls back down to the bottom as soon as he gets to the top. And he and that night he has to walk down the mountain, get the rock, and then push it back up. And that's his life. Now, um, what's it called? The, uh, the, the response to that is to be like, if you were to be a stoic and say that the suffering, the journey, the, 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 hor- the, hor- the horror of rolling the rock every day just to see it roll down is your life. So you then accept it and realize that life is suffering and that's beautiful as long because it's your perspective that you can change and allow yourself to enjoy that um, is a useful thought for when you're when you have to do something you don't want to do but as a young person in the united states in the land of the free where you wake up every day and there's an unlimited amount of opportunities at your disposal of course everyone comes from different socioeconomic statuses and different backgrounds so it's different for each person but it doesn't change the fact that you are a human that has choices every day um and you can you can not roll the rock you can go and do something amazing and it, whatever vibes with you is what makes sense did you, did you have something to say to that oh no no okay i totally cool. agree with what you're saying yeah um, and also on success, my favorite definition of success is the progressive realization of a worthy ideal, which is um, success according to Earl Nightingale, because that allows you to continue to strive towards a goal that you determine is worthy based on your personal perspective. And so that involves knowing who you are and what you want to achieve. And for me, um, I, you know, I refine it down to enlightened self-interest. It's like, how many people can you help? But for every, whoever, you don't have to be this person who wants to help everyone. You have to be the person that you are. And if you won't, if you're afraid of figuring out who you are, you're never going to live a life that is worth living. Again, coming back to that idea of fear. The first thing, if you're afraid of figuring out who you are, that's the first hurdle to get over because that's so essential for figuring out how the, how the rest of the time you should be spending. Yeah. Cool. Um, you, one, one, one point I want to mention there, I've had like a hundred people in my life tell me what I'm about to say. Hey, Daniel, I've got this really weird thought and um, I'm afraid to tell anybody, but for some reason I feel like you're not going to judge me. I've had a hundred people tell me that. Same. And 
so that means that people out there have these ideas and they're going, no, I can't, I can't go there. That's a bad idea. It's so I wanted to read this quote by Ralph Waldo Emerson. You're talking about how do you uh, find your special thing? And I I was mentioning how that's a very American thing. Emerson is like the poet of America. He, his whole Ralph Waldo Emerson created Americanism. And this quote is him. He said, it's kind of flowery. So bear with me. This is a quote by Ralph Waldo Emerson to believe our own thought, to believe that what is true for you in your private heart is true for all men. That is genius. Speak your latent conviction and it shall be the universal sense for the inmost in due time becomes the outmost. And our first thought is rendered back to us by the trumpets of the last judgment. I told you it's flowery. Here's, here's the best part. The highest merit we ascribe to Moses, Plato, and Milton, you know, these are some of the, the, the greatest thinkers of human history, um, that they, is that they, they didn't sit at books and traditions, and they didn't speak what, what other men thought, but they spoke about what they thought. And so a man should learn to detect and watch that gleam of light which flashes across his mind from within more than the luster of the firmament of bards and sages. Yet he dismisses without notice his thought because it is his. That's my favorite quote by Emerson. He's basically saying, quit worshiping Milton and free and, um, and Moses and Plato and Socrates and Elon figure out that little flash of light that only you can see and follow it. And if you do, Eventually, people are going to call you Elon and call you Milton and call you Shakespeare. Right. But we dismiss that because, oh, I'm just Daniel. What do I know? So I think it takes like a kind of arrogance or like confidence to just like follow your little thing. That's all I wanted to say about that. I think um, taking true acceptance over your own autonomy is more important than any skill or natural tendency or socioeconomic position that you have when it comes to having full self-fulfillment and realization. But that's, again, I say that might just be my perspective as someone, my, my dad is a very, um, as I, we said in our interview, my dad's really into his own view. Um, I, my mom, I found out as I've, you know, paid attention to what she says, she, she thinks she's the shit as well. So I'm, it's, it's like, I say this stuff, but it's maybe it's just because that's the way I, I'm meant to think. And it might not work for everyone. I, I, I don't know. But, um, uh, for, for those who do, who are on this, this level, um, the more you pursue it, the, the more questions you'll have, but the more, the closer you'll get to being better than where you were the day before. And it's just, I don't know, you just can't really deny the value in that. So let's talk about something that you and I are both very interested in, um, in the practical, real, physical world outside the mind, and that is environmental issues. So when it comes to tackling <laughs> these environmental issues, how do, you, um, how do you go about thinking about these kind of things? What do you want to know? I want to know how you think about it. So let's start with the topic of global climate change, carbon emissions in the atmosphere, increasing the temperature and leading to uh, loss of life or in an inhabitable planet. How do you think about this kind of stuff when you come when it comes to your work? How did you get involved in it? W- what is your perspective on it? Um, uh, <clears throat> there are, you know, you know, if you're a plumber, you've got a truck full of tools, like 50 tools. You've got a wrench, you've got di- different tape, you've got soldering, you've got welding, you've got all kinds of stuff. 
And if you're going to try to live your life um, with your mind as an engineer or an entrepreneur or a writer or whatever, you also have tools. You have mental tools. And I know this has become popular recently too. There's a venture capitalist, I forget who, he talks about um, mental models. And there's all these mental models that you can use as tools. The most powerful mental model that I've, one of the most that I found is systems thinking, systems analysis. And the easiest way into this world is with a woman named Donella Meadows. Donella Meadows was an ecologist. She studied fish populations. And she has an essay called Leverage Points, Places to Intervene in a System. And the way she told the story was um, she was sitting in the bowels of some government bureaucracy with a bunch of people on a, a table. And she had a sheet of paper. And they were trying to discuss uh, some problem with the government, how can they can fix it. They hired her as a consultant. And she said that she jumped up out of her chair and you know, decades of her studies uh, coalesced for a, in a moment into an insight. She understood how to communicate systems analysis very clearly. And she jumped up and she wrote down like 10 things. And the things that she wrote down are leverage points. So if you, if you have like a lever... And you put a boulder here and you have a fulcrum here, you know, you can move the uh, boulder. Mm -hmm. You know, the Archimedes saying, if you give me a lever long enough, I'll move the earth. So in, in her mental model, the way you change any system, whether that's the human body and it's millions of pieces or a corporation or the whole world, um, the way you change it is you have a lever and you have a fulcrum and here's the system you're trying to change, like the earth and all of its carbon dioxide. And in her essay, Leverage Points, she talked about different points on the lever that you can push to get the system to change. Mm -hmm. Now, it's somewhat abstract, but if you read it two or three times, you'll get it. Um, she talked about how the first lever, uh, the, the first leverage point that everybody focuses on is anything that's easily measurable. So these are KPIs. So let's say somebody has a factory and they hire you as a consultant to imp improve output, more widgets per hour. So what you're going to do is think about KPIs. Well, how many widgets does do the people in the factory produce every hour and so on and so forth. But anything that's easily measurable, while it's where your mind goes to first, is actually not the most powerful point to push. The most powerful point to push is way over here at the paradigm. So imagine a factory producing widgets. Mm -hmm. Now imagine the paradigm changes because we're at war with Hitler. It's World War II. Totally different paradigm. Now... The people aren't just waiting till Friday when they get drunk. They're trying to defeat Hitler and save Western civilization. So by changing the paradigm, it completely... Tony, how do you pronounce his last name from Zappos? Tony Shia? Tony Hise? H-S-I-E-H. He passed away recently. Yes, that's right. That's right. He talks about this. The way people think about their work, mission-based work, like what Elon's doing, he's trying to put uh, humans on a, another planet. Mm -hmm. If you have a different paradigm, it'll completely change the system. So the, the answer I would say is, um, systems thinking, um, now, and, and specifically leverage points by Don Meadows. I, the problem with, with what you just said is that I agree with you and it does, and I don't, and I don't like it because it's, it's obviously you talked about this, this, um, lever and there's different points on it. Closest one being something we can measure carbon, Am I correct to assume that the furthest, that paradigm, the endpoint of the lever you were you were referring to is the way people think about things? Is is that is that is that what you were saying? 
it's it's our philosophies, it's our religion, it's our culture, it's our hypnotism. We're all hypnotized regularly by TV. Correct. That whole thing is the paradigm. Yes. Problem being, I don't want to touch that because that is, I don't feel um, justified or res- not responsible. I don't feel justified in imposing my perspective or way of thinking about things on anyone else. And as we've, we've, we've you know, loved what we've uh, prayed to free thought already throughout this whole podcast for 45 minutes. So I think you're, you're with me there, but I, I fundamentally agree. It get down to the root of humanity, exactly what you were saying, philosophies, religions, the stuff we've been talking about on this podcast, but I'm trying to stay in the more like, you know, day to day stuff because I, I feel comfortable working in that space. I don't feel comfortable working in the space of telling people how to think, although many do. Like you said, we're, we're um, completely tried to, continually hypnotized by media, television. And the problem is they're doing it for nefarious purposes in, in many cases. In fact, I would I would make the argument that there's there's an equal amount in media of nefarious actors and truly enlightened actors and they continually stay in in balance typically but um there's so many people now that they're at a point where um decisions of the way people live can make a huge impact for example the western world uk us france germany canada um for example living one way can fundamentally affect every single living thing on the planet. So it's essential that those who are having a large impact really take a, um, a more enlightened approach or an approach of considering all around them. And, um, that's, that's really tough. So, yeah, I mean, thank you for answering how you think about environmental issues. I think that makes a lot of sense. So I guess asking you if carbon measuring carbon is enough to tackle these issues, probably a, probably a no. So you want to get down to the root of the way people think, how do you, I mean, well, I'll say it's, it, so the good thing about measuring things like, okay, we have too many carbon molecules in the atmosphere. We can count that and we can have a goal, uh, a certain parts per million in the atmosphere. The good thing about that is it's measurable. You can wrap your mind around it. You can know mm-hmm. if you're successful or not, and you can unleash an army of people to go for the goal. But as you go up the leverage, as you go up more leverage points, they're harder and harder to grasp. Um, I'll give you a couple examples. So the first thing, anything that's measurable, uh, Donella talks about subsidies. She talks about taxes, like a tax on carbon or mm-hmm. subsidizing electric vehicles or standards. Like any new building in California can't have natural gas. It has to be electric. Like these are things that are measurable and they're effective, but they're not the most effective. And then you, as you go up the uh, the lever, she talks about other things like information flows. So in Indiana, where I live, uh, there half of the carbon emissions in America come from 10 states and one of them is Indiana. So Indiana is heavily carbon intensive, right? But in the entire state of Indiana, we have like three or four journalists who are writing about environment. I'm not talking about carbon or climate. I'm talking about environment. And we only have like four people doing that. So what if we had one journalist dedicated to writing about climate in Indiana? What if we had 10? That would be a game changer and it would change how information flows in the system. The SEC, the Security and Exchange Commission, made waves a few months ago. They said that whenever companies uh, publish their filings, they have to include things about climate, like their uh, carbon footprint. Mm -hmm. Michael Bloomberg is working on a whole other thing called the Task Force for Climate-Related Disclosures, I think, where as investors, 
If you invest in a hotel company and they have properties around the world, I want to know which of your properties are at risk of rising oceans because that's a material risk to my investment in your hotel. So if you have, if you're the manager for the hotel, you better tell me what climate risks you have to your assets because I want to know. Michael Bloomberg is championing that whole thing. That's an information flows thing. As companies release their carbon footprint, as they release their carbon, their, their climate risks, that changes how information flows in the system, and it is really powerful. Then she talks about another thing, like the rules of the system. So this is uh, who receives incentives, who receives punishments. This is the the law, basically. Um, and then another level, another level up are the goals of the system. So traditionally, we've all been, hip, been hypnotized about GDP. GDP goes up and up to the right. That's a good thing. Well, that's a goal. The goal, the unspoken goal, is is that we want more GDP, right? But people here listening, they might have been, they might have listened to Kay Rayworth or Kate Rayworth. Kate She's Rayworth, a TED Talk yeah. donut economics. Yep. So instead of talking about up and up to the right, the goal for humanity, according to her, should be visualized as a kind of a donut. And in the middle, and there's different uh, things. So one is education, one is natural resource use, and so on and so forth. And if you're a developed country, it's likely that you're using too much and you need to pull back. If you're an underdeveloped country, you need to develop a little bit more. So you should use more natural resources. So there's, she thinks like Goldilocks, it's not too cold, not too hot, but right in the middle. So instead of having up and up to the right and infinite growth, we have a different model. I'm not saying that that's right. I'm just saying that that's a different goal of the system. Mm -hmm. um, so these are examples of how if you read Leverage Points by Donella Meadows, I promise you all of the different, the, the ecosystem of climate initiatives and the cacophony of people pulling in different directions, it'll click in your mind. You'll be able to categorize everybody and all of the climate initiatives in one mental model. And it'll be very good for your intellectual life, I think. Not you particularly, just anybody listening to this. I understand. Could, could you expand on that a little bit more? Well, if you, you know, if you're into climate and you start reading about climate, you see a thousand startup companies, climate tech. And they're all doing cool stuff. But like, what's the underlying order? How do you structure this? Um, what's a better solution than the other solution? How do you compare them, right? So systems thinking is one way to do it. And Donella Meadows leverage points, the framework she provides can help you make sense of all these different people doing all this different stuff. And the reason why that's important is because if you don't have some structure, you're going to get overwhelmed by all the different people doing all the different stuff. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So speaking of all the different people doing all the different stuff, what was the most prominent message you spoke before you started your own company? You spoke to 200 different people about climate. What was the the message that you that you got about the way these people are thinking about the issue? I just asked you how you think about it. I'm wondering what you found the way most people thought about it. From doing the show, I will tell you that I was surprised to find out that most people are not dogmatic about the issue at all. They're much more like me. They're open-minded. They want to learn more. They don't think that their solution is the best solution. So I'm wondering what the message that you got from talking to 200 different people about it. I'll be heretical to your, on this one too. The environmental community, even though it's very small in Indiana, in general, while I, I used to identify with them, I no longer identify with environmentalists. In general, they're not that pragmatic. They're very ideological. And in Indiana, we're, they're on the losing side. They have this martyr complex where they want to keep losing. They're not willing. They're not going to say that, but deep down, it's like a football team that's never won a football game. 
and they get addicted to losing. So that's part of the thing I learned here about Indiana is that the people who are championing a lot of these issues, they're stuck in some psychological thing that's just broken. They're not going to win. Who was that actor who took a bunch of cocaine and he's like, I'm winning, I'm winning. Charlie Sheen. Yes. So a little bit of that's good. Like I want to be a winner, right? Not a lose, not lose constantly. So that's what I learned about Indiana. There's like this losing mentality. The other thing I learned was, is that Indiana's carbon intensive. Like I said, we're one of 10 that produce half the emissions in the country. The other thing I learned is that most people are good. They're pragmatic. Most people care. It's just that the way that the dialogue has been so far, I think this is where my politics comes through. I think the left is trying to use climate as a bludgeon to hit people with and to make themselves feel morally superior. Among other my things. Father, and, and of course, that's going to make people on the right angry and dig in their heels like a donkey. My father-in-law wakes up at 4 a.m. He works like 12-hour days. He's like 70. He shouldn't have to be doing that. He works hard. His entire life, he's worked hard. Every time he has recycling, he carefully, dutifully recycles. He pays extra for his backyard to be uh, organic pesticides so that the honeybees can come back, right? He would never consider himself an environmentalist ever. He doesn't like environmentalists. They're ideological and like nuts. But people like him, there's a ton of them. There's millions of people like that. They're good. They're pragmatic. And so one of the things I learned is that the way that a lot of the climate movement is structured, it's self-defeating. It's like if you have two donkeys pulling on a rope, like they're not going to move because they're defeating themselves. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So I think it's important to treat those people with respect. That's why there's always this, there's this rift between the working class and environmentalists. Environmentalists tend to be trust fund people from Boulder or uh, Marin County, California, or uh, Connecticut. They're not working class people who drive a truck. And they come in and they tell the working class what they can and can't do. But they've already made their money. So this kind of thing doesn't get talked about on the left. It's really frustrating. I see it in Indiana. We're Trump country. Like I know what I know what I'm talking about with this psychological stuff. So if you want to unlock Trump country and get people to move, you got to respect them. Wake up at 5 a.m. and go to the factory and work with them. You know what I mean? Don't yeah. roll out of bed at 10 o'clock after smoking a bunch of pot and tell people what they need to do. Definitely. I um I I, I agree with that. Um you get at the root of it, man. I talk to a lot. I talk about, I talk about solutions and I will continue to talk about solutions on this podcast with people. Cause I think it's really relevant for inspiring others and for validating those who've taken the time to come on the show and say, Hey, you're trying, you're doing something. I love that. But, um, I agree with you very fundamentally that the root of the climate problem or the root of the problem of humanity is the same, the same thing. Um, I mean, I think you can relate it all the way back to the fall in the Bible, as we've kind of alluded to a couple times on this this episode already. The idea that we think we know better than our neighbor, than our leader, than whatever. But we all we're all super arrogant, and I think the answers are, are rather simple. If everyone were to live a way where we just continue to love one another, you know, some people talk about, you know, I've heard my friends say everyone just needs to get high, man, and then we're all good. I've heard Joe Rogan say everyone needs to take DMT. Um, you don't need to say what everyone, 
<laughs> you don't need to say what everyone needs to do, but I think everyone knows at the end of the day um, what what makes sense, but it just seems too too simple to them. So it, that, I mean... I just don't want to be like if we don't solve the 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 root problem of what it means to live a good life is that 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 means that all life all human life has to either be drastically diminished or eradicated. So I'm trying to put you know fix fix the carbon thing to hopefully give people more time to figure out that we should just all love each other. I think most people know. I don't know, man. I I I didn't want to go too too deep on this. I've never really gone gone to this level uh, on the show before because I try to really uh, empower people and show that there are solutions. But uh, it's that fundamental problem, whether it's wealth inequality, the way we live, the way we treat each other. I don't have the answer for how to propagate those ideals effectively into society, but I do think I know what they are, and I think everyone does too. But I don't. I don't believe in, like you said, you were, you're, if people are listening, he's waving his finger at me when he's talking about the left telling people how to live. Um, I really don't think it's about telling people how to live. Perhaps it's about showing people how to live. And I suppose that's what I try to do with, with climate change realty. Um, I really like the most meaningful way that like when I give away my money, I feel the best. I feel like I'm using it the best I possibly could. And that seems counterintuitive for for a materialist or a, a materialist is someone who, who doesn't, who thinks that everything is just materials. But I mean, for um, a con, an American consumer, nice car kind of person, but have you, have you done it before? And not just like putting money into like a penny, like a penny jar. So you feel good, but like finding something that you think is awesome or someone that you think is cool and and supporting them, like instead of just focused on um, what you can do. I don't know. Uh, it's this is a, a deep uh, deep episode, man. All right. So at, at the end here, let's talk about your your most recent project that you're working on. Well, you're working on two, it sounds like. So given the context that we've discussed about Indiana and how it's the tenth largest producer, I think that is that just in the U.S. of of carbon emissions, Indiana. Well. We're one of 10. I don't know if we're the 10th, but we're one of 10 okay. in America. Yeah. Um, what are you doing then with that background understanding of that case? What are you doing with Indiana Drawdown and how does it work? How did it get started? Well, real quick about what you were saying earlier. I don't think we have to solve human nature to fix climate change. I think people listening to this, they should check out Michael Schellenberger. Um, they should check out Bjorn Lumberg. And when you look at these people, you're going to be like, oh no, they're climate skeptics. Read them. Check out Breakthrough Institute. Breakthrough Institute is a think tank founded by Michael Schellenberger and others. They're trying to come up with climate solutions that are pro-economic growth, pro-workers, mm -hmm. right? And this is the stuff that the blue-collar workers want. They don't want you to tell them to stop eating cheeseburgers. We got to come up. We got to come at it from a different direction, not top-down, but bottom-up through a free market and innovation and growth. Um, also, check out Project Drawdown. Yeah. Um, we didn't even talk about that, but no, I like Michael. He's, he's, he has strong opinions, um, which is good. Um, I'm, am I bad? Not Indiana drawdown. Um, what is carbon neutral Indiana? How did that get started? So, uh, so I interviewed those people, like a few hundred people. And then I learned a couple things. One, Indiana is very carbon intensive. The second thing I learned, which still makes me angry is that national climate philanthropy from like Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, Rockefeller, Ford, MacArthur, it's not evenly distributed. It's going to blue states. 
Um, if Indiana got its share, we're 3% of the population. We're 3% of 330 million people. We should get 3% of climate philanthropy. We're not. That's 25 million a year. We're getting like half a million a year. Indiana climate is getting like 5% what it should be. People talk about equity. They usually mean racial equity, black and white. But equity also means class. The people in Indiana, we, we may not be as rich as people in Connecticut or Colorado, but that doesn't mean that we're not worthy of engaging. And if national climate philanthropy could engage Indiana in, the, in a respectful way, we could decarbonize so much. So I learned this and I thought, what are we going to do about it? Well, let's create a nonprofit so we can build trust, public trust. It's easier for people to trust you if you're like, hey, I my finances are public and I have a salary cap, you know, don't, you know, mm-hmm. let's build a nonprofit. But there's no philanthropy for us. So we have to be really freaking crafty. So let's sell something like Boy Scouts sell cookie, uh, popcorn and Girl Scouts sell cookies. So what we do is we help households measure their carbon footprint over the phone. All of them could do this on by Googling it. They could do it themselves. They just don't. Having a, a, a carbon inventory scheduled on your calendar forces you to do it. I just did it with someone earlier today. It takes 15 minutes. And I've done this with like 500 people. I measure their carbon footprint by asking a bunch of questions, kind of like what Project Ren and others do, but we're actually doing it on the phone. And then I say, okay, you produce 30 tons a year and you clean up your physical trash, you clean up your sewage, why don't you clean up your carbon trash? At $15 a ton, it's only going to cost you whatever, $32 a month. So most people are like, okay, let's do that. So they pay $32 a month, right, to our nonprofit. We take 60% of that and we invest that in wholesale carbon offsets that fund projects that reduce emissions. And then 40% goes to fund growth, marketing, and education. So that's the financially sustainable grassroots movement that's nonpartisan, solutions-focused here in Indiana. We've received no support from national philanthropies, but we're killing it here. I I can't emphasize that enough. So that's my day job is Carbon Neutral Indiana. I also have another company I can tell you about if you're interested. Let's talk about that next and then we'll come back maybe. So the other idea is, so that nonprofit is with households. We're building a grassroots movement, one household at a time. They put up a yard sign. I think I have some, oh, I don't. So that's, <laughs> that's so that thing, that way of going is not very financially lucrative, but we're building right. social and political power, right? That's a whole other type of currency. There's a, for, a for-profit company I'm starting with my friends, or I've already started we're going to reforest flooded farmland. So in Indiana, we have a million acres that gets flooded regularly and it's not that productive for corn and soybeans. So you might as well plant trees. And when you plant trees, it prevents soil runoff. Right now, every time it rains, we lose our topsoil into the Mississippi. And in 50 years, we're not going to have any topsoil left. So one of the things that you can do is by planting trees along the streams and creeks and rivers, it prevents the soil from leaving and it stays there on the farm. It also... If you for if you reforest land that's flooded regularly, you can make more money than farming because companies want to buy carbon offsets, right? So this is my latest venture is to reforest Indiana at scale. Like I'm talking hundreds of thousands of acres. Awesome. Um but do you see any issues with helping people reach carbon neutrality just through like offsets? Doesn't you think that kind of just like pushes it somewhere else? It's like for someone else to deal with? Oh, no, there's a lot of misinformation about this. The way I think about it is um, putting a price on carbon. When you put a price on something, it changes the way you think. So if 
if somebody is having a lot of, uh, if someone's not having success in the dating world and they're like, nobody ever respects me. And then you say, well, um, they just take advantage of me. And you say, well, tell me about it. And they're like, well, I always sleep with people on my first date. And you're like, well, they don't have to work for it. You know, you're giving, why would they want the cow if you give them the milk for free? That's the old saying. I don't know if that's respectful, but. So maybe you hold back a little bit and you get the person to be romantic. And maybe if you really like them, you'll get them to marry you. Don't give them the milk for free, right? And it's the same thing with other things. If you give something away for free, people don't don't value it. So right now, most people in corporations are freely polluting. There's no price on the carbon. And it would be nice if Joe Biden put a price on carbon, but I don't know if he has the capital to do that politically. So Citizens Climate Lobby, our friend from Topher Anderson, and Students for a Carbon Dividend, these people are advocating for a federal price on carbon so that polluters have to pay. That would be a good thing. So what we're doing, we're coming, instead of from the top down, we're coming from the bottom up. We're going to people and saying, hey, you were a Boy Scout, right? What did you learn in Boy Scouts? Clean up after yourself. If you go camping and you make a mess, you clean it up, right? If you didn't learn that, you're not a good Boy Scout. You didn't learn anything. So if you produce trash, why don't you clean it up? If you produce carbon trash, why don't you clean it up? It it hurts people. Clean it up. It's not that expensive. So we're asking people to voluntarily put a price on their carbon emissions. That changes the way they think. It changes the way that they act, right? Somebody, Mm -hmm. one of the most powerful people in Indiana who controlled about $3 billion, I did his carbon inventory. And he's like, you know, I read Rachel Carson's Silent Spring when I was young and I cared about environment, but I started a family and a career and I forgot about it. But once I measured my carbon footprint and I paid for it, I started thinking differently. And he told me over coffee, he said his wife and him sold their cars and they bought a plug-in electric hybrid that gets like 100 miles to the gallon. And the reason why he did that is because he's paying for carbon, right? And so when people voluntarily put a price on their carbon emissions by being carbon neutral now and reducing over time, then it'll be more easy for us to get a, a mandatory price on carbon. We're like preparing the way. Yeah. I mean, whatever you think works, man. I think it's 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 well overdue. Having this untaxed externality is pretty ridiculous. Even if it's not as simple as just carbon, carbon makes probably the most sense. So that's interesting that you, well, what do you see as this, is it the government's responsibility to create this price? Or do you think that we need to be, as the people, pressure the government to do that? Or what are your thoughts on the government's role in, in you know, creating climate action? Well, politicians, the thing they care about the most is getting reelected. If they do something that's unpopular and they get they get kicked out of office, they can't continue. So they're not going to do anything unless the people are behind them. So we have to, in the grassroots movement, create support for them to take a risk. That's so like we create this, support. Go ahead. go ahead. We create support for them, and then they can pass legislation. You know what I mean? But if they pass legislation, and then 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 the other party takes over and they un they undo the legislation. It's not a good, you have to, it takes time to build this, you know? Yeah. I don't know. Thinking about a politician only caring about being reelected makes me think of the person who's working to pay the bills so they can continue working, doing something that they don't like. It doesn't make sense. And I don't think all politicians are like that. I think there are some, some great folks out there who really, who are there for a reason and and they will stand by their beliefs no, no matter what. I think 
I don't understand I don't, how you can, I, go ahead. I don't mean to say that they're not uh, have integrity. I'm just saying that right. if they don't get reelected, nothing matters. They can't continue. Gotcha. So like they're really afraid. The, the thing they're afraid of the most is getting kicked out. And if they mm-hmm. take a risk and they could get kicked out. So it's our job. We can't just be like, come on, do this thing. We have to build an army of people who say, we support you. We will have your back. You're not going to get kicked out because you take this risk. Right. Mm-hmm. Based on where we're at now, and we'll, we'll kind of sign off after this, I think. Do, do you think that as Americans, neutrality, carbon neutrality is enough? Or do you think we have more responsibility for our legacy emissions and that we should be really taking the reins and, and pioneering this this world back to where we uh, where it should be for everyone? That's a good question. I think that's the second level depth. I'll go to the third level depth, I think. So a lot of people are like, oh, I'm carbon neutral. That's good enough. But wait a minute, we've been creating emissions since, what, 1850? Mm-hmm. So surely we have some responsibility for that. But if you go one level deeper, we are one of the innovators. In, in it, we're the engine of innovation in this world. Um, we're like a, in our best, this sounds, some people will really hate what I'm about to say, but we can be a shining light to the world. We represent free speech and democracy. Not always, sometimes we're terrible. But what's that worth? So yes, the Western world has emissions, but the Western world has also produced a lot of good things too. And how do you measure that? I have no idea how you measure that. Good things like like SpongeBob SquarePants and popsicles. Yeah, there's, there's no limit. There's no limit to it. How do you measure that? I mean, this is it. It seems to all come back to that that root of the question. It's like, what is what is existence? What a what a great way to start off the chat. It really it really loops in everything. It's uh, one more thing before I ask you advice for people. How do you do you you find it weird when you talk to lots of people that they don't think about that that stuff at all? I'm I mean, you were like you were just talking before you were talking about being in a sensory deprivation tank. I'm thinking about that stuff every day. And I think that's just who I am. Do you find it strange to be wandering about the world and, and talking to people who just aren't all at all concerned with like deep, meaningful questions. They're just kind of existing as is. Is that strange for you for, as someone who's always deeply thinking about the meaning behind your choices in your life and your existence? Well, I used to be like that about five years ago. I kind of turned off the philosophy and started thinking about practical things, but there's a story. My dad passed away recently about six months ago. And there's a story that he, um, we were sitting at a dinner table and um, I was telling somebody something and the person said, Daniel, I have no idea what you're talking about, but will you please p- pass the bread? <laughs> and, <laughs> and my dad took me aside and he said this many times. He's like, Daniel, never forget this moment. Most people have no clue what you're talking about and they don't care. Do not look down on them. Do not expect them to care. He's like, if, just to be practical, you will be more successful when you realize what drives most people. And without being a snob about it, you can realize that different people have different gifts. And so I really appreciate my dad teaching me that lesson. <laughs> oh, I appreciate you for sharing that. I think that's the most I've ever laughed on the podcast. Um, <laughs> okay, Daniel, you're the man. You're, you're like a person who makes me want to drive across the country just to come visit you. So thanks for taking the time. Thanks for interviewing me a couple weeks ago. Thanks for coming back on for the podcast to share your own story and your perspective. I really appreciate it. Any final pieces of advice for young folks passionate about building the better world or, or eating bread? <laughs>
Uh, if you don't yet, you might get a notebook, go to Walmart and buy a 99 cent notebook mm -hmm. and buy a 99 cent pen. It doesn't have to be fancy. Mm -hmm. And the next time you have an, a cool idea, whether that's a poem or a, you make up your own rap song or an invention or an idea for a movie, write it down and just do that. Wake up. At, if you wake up at 2 a.m. with an idea, write it down and just keep writing down your ideas. And, you know, 20 notebooks later, you'll be very glad you did that. You'll have all this wealth, you, all this cool stuff you can do. That's my one thing. Uh, I love it. I love your one thing. I love the whole episode. Um, I used to, I, I used to have more of that. I have a, a whiteboard now. So I write them on the board and then I take a picture of it and I have that with why my whole house is covered in whiteboards. Fantastic advice. Daniel, thanks for the time. I really appreciate it. Adios amigo. Peace out. So if you or anyone else you know is looking to buy or sell a home anywhere in the USA and would like to create thousands of dollars in donations without any cost out of pocket, please visit ccrealty.org today.